My favorite type of comedy is when, well, actually, if I'm going to be totally honest, really honest, I love physical comedy. So Lily Tomlin to me, Lucille Ball, they are doing clowning. Lily Tomlin is doing clown work on Grace and Frankie. And it is physical and it is it is joyful and childlike. And I think it's absolutely thrilling to watch. It's, it's so delightful to me. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with June Diane Raphael. I am an actress. I'm currently on the show Grace and Frankie. I play Jane Fonda's daughter, character named Brianna. Uh, and I'm also an entrepreneur. I've co-founded the co-working space where we offer on-site childcare and a whole village of amenities and services for mothers and caretakers called The Jane Club in Los Angeles. And I'm also an author. You may recognize June for her incredible comedic timing and wit from shows like Grace and Frankie or Charlize Theron's right-hand person in Longshot. She also co-hosts the movie discussion podcast, How Did This Get Made?, alongside Jason Mansukis and her husband, Paul Shear. June has appeared in dozens of films and TV shows. She is a veteran of Upright Citizens Brigade. Recently, she's created a co-working space for women called The Jane Club to provide an all-inclusive infrastructure for working moms, offering everything from workout classes to childcare. She's co-authored a book with Kate Black called Represent. It's a pragmatic and maybe spiritual guide to break down the perceived barriers to inspire women to run for elected office. I wanted to know how this improv-trained comedian became a TV star and what it was about the 2016 election that motivated her to write Represent. So we're going to cover the book in detail today. I'd like to showcase many of the chapters that you've covered from Can I Run If There Are 100 Titty Picks of Me Out There? to asking people for money. My main question. Main question, (laughs) mine too. And that was like the polite version of that question. To how do I build a marketing strategy? And then we'll talk about you as an artist. You were flying on a plane the night of the 2016 election. Can you tell us where you were headed? I was headed to Long Island, to JFK, to uh, the funeral of my father-in-law. And um, I was still hopeful when I got on the plane and I was wearing a Hillary (laughs) t-shirt. And then right before we were about to take off, Florida was called for Trump. And I think I took an Ambien and had a glass of wine and just like, and I knocked myself out. And when I woke up, it was because a gentleman in first class was standing up screaming like, yeah, he did it! And humping the chair that he was sitting in, dry humping it over and over again. So that's how I found out the news. So I love this image of a guy humping his chair, waking everybody up, so excited that he is in first class and is essentially maintaining his first-class seat in life with the election of our current president. So many women uh, were inspired to do something after the election in a way that could uh, affect change. And you've done a couple of things, and uh, I'd like to talk to you about your book, Represent. 
Do you think that you'll take your own advice writing represent after going on a mini campaign talking at the, about the book? Do you think that you would like to run your own campaign? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we should all consider it. I don't think it should be so crazy of an idea. You know, I know I know for so many of us it feels that way and it feels like there's all this mystery shrouded around how to run. I I think that the idea of civic engagement and is kept away from most people for a reason and intentionally so. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems best left to others, right? It seems like you have to be older and have kids that are grown and be white and be male and have personal wealth and access to wealth and all of those things um, that so many of us aren't. And I'm wondering if you can actually read this uh, for me. It's page zero zero. (laughs) It's the dedication. Oh, I'd love to. We dedicate this book to all the men who have been making decisions about women without women. Thank you for your years of public service at tables without women present. Thank you for your time, your energy, and your talent. We appreciate you. And also, we're coming for you. I'm honored. (laughs) Whether you're playing Jane Fonda's daughter and Grace and Frankie, or, you know, from your days at Upright Citizens Brigade to your podcast that you do with your husband and friend, your wit is always coming through. And it really makes, it makes you relatable, but it makes it more fun. It also makes it easier to call out some of the institutional inequalities that we see all the time. For example, when you and Kate introduce yourselves in the book and you make a joke about how, you know, uh, what does diverse representation of women look like? And you, you, you go into depth of the, the beauty of it. And then you say, that will be represented in your writers. Just kidding. We're both white women. And you, yes. you get white at- women with, with, in particular, what I think is so, mu- so important about that is white women with the same access to wealth. Roughly, That's a, that's a good distinction. And I was going to say throughout the book as a theme of intersectional feminism, um, what does intersectional feminism mean to you and why is it important to you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, it's important to me because I believe in a representative government. Uh, specific to this book, that's why it's really important to me. Um, it's important to me as a person because I feel like my humanity is tied to it. Mm. To be totally honest, I feel like I have to investigate the ways in which I uphold these systems, Um, my responsibility there, whether I've breathed it in and, you know, a lot of it operates without our consent and, and... what it's a part of the culture, white supremacist culture that we live in. And so, of course, I'm a part of that. Um, but it's imp- really important to me to investigate it for my own freedom. And, I, you know, that's a part of the conversation around, like, white privilege that I don't think people talk enough about is actually the joy in uh, getting free. One of the things that I love so much about your book are the specific details of how to rely and ask for support from your inner circle, mm-hmm. from childcare to getting clothes to getting advice, um, getting the the chutzpah up to go and talk to your boss and say, I'm considering this. Um, how can we work that mm-hmm. together? And so it's really the specifics of this book that break down what is so mystical of running. And I'm wondering if you can um, tell us one part of those details that you feel is like, Okay, that 
that to me kind of unlocked Pandora's box and I can see myself going through like the looking glass now that I know mm. X. Is it fundraising? Is it is it going through the titty pics? Mm. What, what is it for you? I think for me it's probably the caretaking piece. I think, you know, we really set out to paint an accurate picture of women's lives and we could not speak for all women and every experience is different but I think the book really honors and names all of the unpaid labor that women do and that was really incredibly important to me that we acknowledge it both the labor of taking care of small children um, women are, are doing that work and the labor of taking care of elderly parents and so the book is a practical guide, which is to say we are meeting women where they are and saying, um, don't let this stop you. Let's talk about those granular details. Let's get specific about it because that's, you know, that's how our lives run. Mm-hmm. And I actually really resent the idea of, of balancing it all, having it all, um, because so much of that is dialogue. And there's actually so little infrastructure that really is willing to change to um, support women. I wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, career as an actor. Okay, gender nooch. I don't like saying actress. I agree. I'm just used to it. When I was growing up, that's what it was, and that's what I wanted to be. So I have a certain reverence for it and love for it because it was what I was aspiring to do and all I could think about and all I wanted. So I totally get it and agree, and I also have a real soft spot in my heart for it. (laughs) So as an actress, uh, (laughs) growing up on Long Island— I'm trying to, like, get the scene of what it was like to be in your, like, middle school bedroom. Mm. Like, if it was pastels or grunge or was it, like, my so-called life or was it more like Clarissa Explains It All? It was more like Clarissa Explains It All. I mean, I I was, um, I, I just loved my girlfriends. I loved school. I had a po- very positive outlook. You know, I, I had a very loving and loved childhood. I mean, my big cross to bear was my height. So I'm 5'9", and I was 5'9 at 11 years old. So I was just towering over everyone. So you would you would also see me in that bedroom hunched over trying to hide, quite literally hide my body within itself. I have a birthday coming up, and I just can't believe I never got taller. Yeah. Well, you don't think there's any room for growth? Yeah, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I did. You are actually the only person that I've worn heels and a thong for. I am honored beyond words. Because <laughs> I just felt like this woman gets up every day and looks nice, and I don't want her to see any panty lines. Listen, on my, I on don't my have. Skirt. You're not going to see any panty lines, but you're also not going to see anything under here. This is just. <laughs> I'm just free to be right now because I couldn't afford it today. <laughs> well, that's another version of treat yourself. <laughs> Um, did you have, um, when you were in high school, did you do theater? Did you do plays? Yes, I did them all. Um, I loved it so much. It's interesting. I think about my dad because I I also played sports and I loved sports so much and I was good. And especially because of my height, 
there was a lot of fervor around my athletic abilities, specifically with basketball. Was there a play that you got? Did you have the piece of paper in the hallway where you had to look yes, to see if you got it? Do you remember like that feeling of so getting something? So when I started ninth grade, what I remember is the first piece of paper that went up was the callback list. And it was a play called The Rhymers of Eldridge. I was called back for almost every role. I mean, I think a number of male roles, too. Like, I just saw my name on all the roles. And I ended up playing a smaller part, but I it was the first feeling I had of, like, maybe I could do this. And it was a very big deal. So, But what I was going to say is I, I look back on my father's reaction to it because he was at every game, at every event, loved the experience of of my, you know, sports career. And then I dropped it all to pursue the plays and do the plays mm-hmm. in high school. And he never said a word about it. Was completely, and I understood his disappointment at my wedding because his entire speech was just like a litany of my, it was just stats, my mm-hmm. basketball numbers, mm-hmm. you know, and accolades. So and he, did I, he come to your plays? My dad, talk about a public school supporter. My father went to every play after we graduated. Like, he was just like, I pay taxes. Like, I'd like to go see some theater. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now I know why. <laughs> like, this is I gotta for me. I got to take that in. I got to take yeah, that in. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But That's anyway, really I appreciate wonderful. I appreciate his parenting quite a bit because Uh I know he was deeply invested in that. And now being a parent myself, I know how much kind of projection goes into the experience. And he was really able to separate. How did you decide to pursue acting more seriously? Because that's such a commitment to take in an industry that is mostly rejection. Mm -hmm. The yield is so low Mm -hmm. that makes it to the outside world Mm -hmm. that I find really, I would personally really struggle with. You know, I I didn't feel like I had a choice, oh. you know? I did not feel like I had a choice. I also knew I was smart enough that I could find my way out if I needed to. Um, and looking back, I'm like, oh, I also had a, I had a safety net. I mean, not—so many people don't have this. I knew my parents would take me back in if I needed to, if I needed to go back in. So your Clarissa Explains It All room was still Yeah, it was still too. intact for many, many years. So I— I think having that stability and that um, safety net in my life helped me. But I also, I just didn't feel like I had a choice. I I love doing it so much that it's, and then truly I do feel like, oh, if you can do anything else and like doing anything else, you you should be doing that other thing. Because this is a life of misery um, and heartache. But, But when it's good... It's so good. It's so good. I mean, I'm projecting now. No, it's so good. So it's, speaking it's, of so good, yeah. Upright Citizens Brigade, how did you find your way there? So I met one of my dearest friends, Casey Wilson, of SNL and Happy Endings and tons of other things at NYU. And we had created a sketch comedy show together. What after, was it called? It was called Road Hard and Put Away Wet, <laughs> which was an expression her mother used to use. That title was all her. And I, w- I was always obsessed with that phrase because I'd never heard it before. But Casey and I wrote a show together, and we started working on it right after college. And she she was the one—I mean, I credit so much of my career to her because she was—I was ambitious, and she was so much more ambitious than me. And she was so much bolder than me um, and willing to ask for things that, to me, were garish and embarrassing. Like um, what? 
just like call the director of the theater and say, you need to come downtown and see us. Wow. Oh, bold as hell. And so she really pulled me along. And I was very, and remain grateful to have been able to be in the wake of her commitment to her own career and her belief in both herself and us as a writing team. So as a writing team, you went from Upright Citizens Brigade and you did a lot of work together, including writing uh, Bride Wars, Mm -hmm. a very famous Mm -hmm. epic duel between (laughs) Kate Hudson and Anne Hathaway fighting for the plaza to have their wedding day on the same day. I think this film has a lot of... um, Humor that you see comes through when women write for women characters mm-hmm. and also taking risks with being really slapstick. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk us through how you maybe wrote a particular scene or I feel like when we work, sometimes there's these moments where things click, mm-hmm. just like Mercury and retrograde, mm-hmm. wherever that is. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> if you could give us a Mercury and retrograde or whatever yeah. that is with Casey Wilson. Oh, my God. I'd love to. I mean, Casey... And I just, at the core of our relationship, we just make each other laugh. And so, um, you know, she's the kind of friend I'm, I have who I'm interested in her take on it all. And her just approach to the world makes me laugh. And I think what we both connected on early on and our sort of click with each other was that we found women so funny at a time when... We didn't have much modeling for women comedians and women doing comedy. But for us, we were looking at our mothers and their friends and our girlfriends and ourselves. And we just thought it was hilarious. So, And we thought the dynamic and specifically that female friendship, the ways in which women interact with each other, we found to be hilarious. And so, so much of the, the sketch comedy show... And Bride Wars. I mean, Bride Wars is a studio movie. So that's also like creation by committee. So we were also pulled back from doing a lot of what we wanted to do there. And our process was really us improvising a lot together and finding those voices together and doing those characters and then putting them And so who would paper. you play? I always played Kate Hudson's character. And Casey played uh, Anne Hathaway's. So did you actually dye her hair? No, I didn't dye my own hair. Well, see, in our original draft, see, that's a rewrite, the dyeing of the hair. In our draft, um, she left the stuff on for too long and it all fell out and she was bald. <gasps> yeah. In the movie, the, her hair turns blue. But so those— Oh, my God. Yeah. And it was just, I mean, to see oh Kate God. Hudson in a bald cap walking down <laughs> New York City, like, I— <laughs> I mean, we just—we— you know, but we also learned a lot. So I, I'm also not here to, like, slam the studio system because we actually had an amazing executive right. at Fox who who sought us out, believed in us, pulled us up, and said, you can do this. We we kept on telling her, we're not writers. Like, I don't know why you keep on thinking we should do this. And she was so adamant about it. And her name's Heidi Sherman Gray, and she's an unbelievable woman, and she was our studio executive, a part of the team that's making those decisions on where to pull back and what— the, tra- the trailer moments are and all of the sort of um, the commerce piece of the movie business um, that has nothing to do with the creative. And and yet I also, she also was really wonderful to us and, um, and also gave us great notes. We had never written a script before. 
Do you have like an acting school or philosophy or principle that you abide by? Mm -hmm. Because I know there's like different like schools of thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I came up through Stella Adler at NYU, which is a more kind of method-based acting training program. Um, And that's like hugging ice to like feel cold? It's not sense memory, um, but... But it's more based on the imagination and sort of putting your own mind into it. So pulling from like an emotional moment to you to don't use have that to actually use your own experience. And I think that's maybe the distinction between okay. like Strasberg. I mean, this is also in the weeds, but if you it, between like Strasberg's um, sense memory and what Stella Adler took from all of that uh, was more about using your imagination and how powerful a tool that is. So I can imagine being in those scenarios, and and in that exercise, I then am in those scenarios. Mm-hmm. So it relies much more on your own ability to imagine. So can you walk me through using your imagination, how you decide to tap into that emotion and maybe pick your gestures? I've always mm-hmm. wondered this, mm-hmm. how people— cause one thing I love about you, no matter what you do, is your comedic timing is so funny. Yeah. Like, I can't tell you how hard I laughed when I saw Longshot by myself. <laughs> I, treated my, I treated myself to see it, to see Longshot at 4 p.m. on a Monday. Best decision ever. Were you so, by yourself in the theater? Oh, yeah. I go. That's like my treat. I take myself to the movies oh, maybe once so every good. 10 days. And there's a theater near me that serves food and alcohol. Dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I go in really comfy pants, my maternity pants, because they have no, they have so much give. You can wear, yeah, you can you eat can, how much you want. You can get an appetizer. Mm-hmm. So I got an appetizer and an entree and I think a hot toddy. And I um, laughed so hard at some of your lines and long shot. It just cracked me up. Thank like you. the scene where you come out of the bedroom and then it's like exposed that your that your character is like um, having a relationship with somebody else, and just like some of your timing. So I'm wondering if maybe you could walk me through like how you get a scene or a script, and you decide how you're going to pause or make your gesture or block yeah. it. I mean, I have a process that I I I don't know that I would recommend for anyone else, but I mean, a part of it is the UCB philosophy, which is don't think. Mm. So UCB, they're big. Um, their big training tool is asking their students to not think or plan what they're going to do and to be in that moment and ready. Um, So I do that. So I actually don't... Here's what I plan. I know my lines and I know how I feel, but I don't plan what I'm going to do. Cool. Yeah. So, And the other thing I always ask for, and this is sort of related to the book, is... You know, I think sometimes actors don't realize that you do all this training and most of it's theater-based, like you're doing scenes. And and when you get to film and TV, it's a completely different process and it's really technical. And you have to be ready to explode and be free and make a fool out of yourself and be wrong um, in front of technicians and majority who are men standing behind a camera watching you and... That that alone is not set up, it doesn't set especially women up to be creatively free. And so I have to do so much work. I mean, my what my process truly is, is the um, getting comfortable and saying, like, I'm going to be doing it again. And it's not going to be anything like what you just saw. 
And I'm setting some parameters around my creative space because nobody else is going to do that. And I have to tell you what I need. So for the, for example, that scene in Longshot, like that was all improvised. There was nothing written. And I had the honor of working with someone like Seth Rogen, who is an unbelievable improviser, the best improviser I've ever worked with, and saw that in me and, and trusted me in that, so gave me a very long leash to do whatever I wanted. I don't have that necessarily everywhere, but it's incredibly important for me to make that space for myself because my hope for every time I walk onto a set is that I walk out of there feeling like I failed. Uh, because if I haven't, if I haven't risked anything, and if I haven't been concerned with, like, doing it right, which, you know, I'm a Capricorn. I like to be right. I like to please authority figures. You know, I have to resist that all the time in my work, and it is very challenging for me. So much of what you talk about, whether you're partnering with Kate Black to write a book, whether you're working with Casey Wilson to write a movie, um, is very relationship-based. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can... Um, uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if you can tell me how you pivoted with Paul Shear, your now husband, from this is a dude that gives me advice on how to punch up a two-woman show to <laughs> let's get married. Oh, gosh. I mean, I have made some bad decisions in my life, and then I've made some very good ones. And Paul Shear is the best decision I've ever made. In what way? Oh, man. I'll cry talking about it. I I married my best friend, truly, quite truly. And we had a friendship that was deep and special and meaningful before we had a romantic relationship. And did you meet on set? We met at UCB. We met because, I mean, unfortunately, I don't remember the first time we met. He said he came backstage to say good job on our show and he like popped in. And Casey was really sweet and said hello, and I barely looked up at him. So he thought I was, like, a raging bitch. <laughs> and I was, you know. <laughs> so that landed. <laughs> that came through. Uh, I UCB was so male-dominated that I was just, like, getting through in the way that I could. Um, but we—so then we met again— uh, because he was giving me notes on my show. And the artistic director of the theater, who's our dear friend Owen Burke, said, you should get notes from people who are veterans of the theater. You should sit down with Paul. And so I did. Um, and then we we developed this friendship. But I, it was such a natural rhythm so quickly that it was shocking. So does he still give you notes? I value his opinion over everyone else's creatively. Um, I can't experience my work. I experience it through his lens uh, because he fully sees me. We also get into a ton of disagreements. And it's hard. Like, we have young children. It's When you have young children in a relationship, it's just like everybody's got strong opinions. We both have very strong opinions about how things should be. I, I know that for on the night of the 2016 election, you went to Long Island for the funeral of for Paul's stepfather. And you, I'm guessing you guys were together when your mother passed away? Yes. Did he know how to support you during that time? Were you able to ask for his support in a specific way? I was so grief-stricken and traumatized. My mother passed away very suddenly that I didn't know which end was up. 
And so I couldn't ask because I didn't know what to ask for. Um, But what he did, which I think sometimes people don't know to do in grief, and I don't think I would, I don't think I knew either, but he just simply was. He just was present and with me through my grief and still is. I mean, that is not something that's over for me. He still, you know, um, is present in my grief and... I think sometimes people are so uncomfortable around it because they don't know what to say. And he was willing to not know. I wanted to ask you, you have two young sons. And how do you navigate um, being uh, a mom to to boys in a world today? Well, you know, I've said this before, but I ha- I identify them as boys. But I'm open to them identifying any way they w- wish to at some point. So... What I try to do is really give them a vocabulary to describe their emotions. And we talk a lot about feelings. And um, people don't talk about parenting in this way enough, too. Like, I have a chance to—well, first of all, I don't even distinguish myself as, like, my childhood is not gone. Mm. It is still with me. I get to play all the time. Like, I believe in that. I believe in, like, accessing joy all the time. But but the other piece is— I. I am experiencing my childhood all over again with my kids. It's amazing. I love it. So we've gone deep, so now we go light. Our lightning round, truth or truth on the women. Um, This is what we have been preparing for the whole time. What do you love so much about Real Housewives? So I'm going to credit Roxane Gay with her her own description of why she loves Real Housewives and why I do too. Because uh, she articulated it so well on Casey's podcast, Bitch Sesh, where she talked about seeing women behave so badly and living out loud in ways that are shocking. And performing themselves that I find endlessly entertaining and fascinating. You know, there's so much that I actually could take a cue from. And I know people love to say it's trash, don't watch it, it's destroying our brains, like whatever. I don't care. Um, There is something to take away from it, which is like, oh, they are unapologetic (laughs) in in who they are. And I, I find it... I find it inspiring. What was your favorite road hard sketch? Or do you remember one that you and Casey still laugh about? Yes, my favorite sketch. And I think the best sketch we wrote was about two young girls who um, there's a power dynamic set up right away where I'm I'm sort of in a position, like I'm the popular girl and she's been brought over for a play date and I don't really want her there. And I tell her about all these other kids I'm hanging out with. And then um, she's trying to stay for dinner. And I'm like, you actually have to go. You're pretty sure your parents are here. And so we set up that power dynamic. And then I start to tell her that I'm going to be working on my my, um, song for my musical theater class. And so I put on a version of... uh, it's when the girl dies in Les Mis. It's like, don't, don't you fret, Monsieur Marius. It's mm. the, the the death scene in the beginning. So I put that on. I start lip syncing to it, 
as the little girl. And then halfway through, and Casey's just sort of watching it, halfway through, she bursts out as the male voice, but with this, like, intense... (laughs) She's like, a little fall of rain. And it's this, like, intense... And then what ends up happening, and then you, I look at her, and I'm seeing her completely differently now. She's a star. And I end up, we end up doing this song together. And at the end, I, I like, die in her arms. And she pops up, and she's like, my parents are here. <laughs> and leaves. And I'm just sort of like, so it, it, it was just, it's such a small moment, but it was, it's, the whole sketch is really about... Being 11 and needing so much from your girlfriends and wanting the world, you know, and the power they have in your lives. And, um, and of course, it was also about the power of musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the themes of today are Lucille Ball, musical theater, and um, how to get comfortable while looking good. Yeah. Which I think we both really accomplished. Important. Yeah. I'm going to button my skirt now. Great. Okay. You can get your copy of Represent and start your campaign to run for office and follow June on Twitter at Miss June Diane. That's M-S-J-U-N-E-D-I-A-N-E. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. Special thanks to Sabine Janssen and Nora Kipnis and Sonic Union and Gail Reed. You can find a picture of me and June in our cute outfits on Instagram at The Women Pod. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review or better yet, tell a friend. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.